Um, we're going to keep going this week in the, um, the story of the Good Samaritan. So we're in week three of the same parable. So week one um, was, you know, what was that, before the break, before the Blue Angels week. Um, what we did was we talked, we read the actual story of the Good Samaritan we walked through. And if you remember the end of that, the sort of the thrust of it was the, the Great Samaritan was what I said. Like, Jesus is the Great Samaritan. And you can't be a Good Samaritan to people around you until you understand what it is that Jesus has done for you. That he sacrificed uh, to make your life better. He sacrificed for your salvation. And this picture of the Good Samaritan is ultimately fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And then we just left it there. And we said, let's just think about that for a week and let's be worshipful and thankful for that. Well, week two, what we did was, if you remember, I explained kind of how I do a lot of sermons. We kind of walk through the text. Um, I talk about how does Jesus ultimately fulfill whatever's this idea. Usually then we'll talk about some general theological ideas and then we'll get to the application, like here's what you do about this. So the second week was our general theological ideas. If you remember, we, last week we talked about three things, that loving your neighbor um, breaks down the evil systems of Babylon that we see in the world. We said loving your neighbor um, is, will be costly and that scripture constantly talks about sort of that sacrifice of loving your neighbor. And then the third one was loving your neighbor crosses tribal boundaries. And that's a big point of the Good Samaritan. It's, he wasn't the good Jewish guy helping the other good Jewish guy, right? He was the Good Samaritan helping the Jewish guy. And that's huge. And we talked about the theme of, uh, of, uh, of uh, this, this idea of race and God building a people from all tribes and all nations um, and people from just kind of all over. Okay, so today what we're going to do then is what a normal sermon would be just the application. So normally I'll say, all right, let's just take the last five minutes and say, how does this apply to you? So the last five minutes is today's whole sermon, which is why you can see as I started to outline all of this stuff originally, I was like, ah, we're not going to do this in a week or two weeks. We're going to do this in three weeks. So yeah, today is the section of application. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a lot from uh, this book here. It's called Loving My Actual Neighbor by Alexandra Kukendall, I want to say. K-U-Y-Koykendall, something, I don't know. Okay, so this is a pretty good book. Um, uh, this actually, though, the reason I'm doing this is because I figure most of you guys aren't going to read the book, so I'll just kind of, we'll do a lot of the summary of the book today. She actually wrote another book Melissa really liked. What was that book called? Loving My Actual Life. Um, that was pretty great. Melissa just finished it the other day. Anyway, so um, her setup to this book, in the setup to this book, she quotes uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis says this, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. And that's uh, from mere Christianity, right? That's a great quote, is so often, and especially the Western world, we think about love like, well, I have to feel something about somebody, and that's what love is. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is a lot of times you're called to love your neighbors that maybe you don't even like. <laughs> so how do you do that, right? And then once you start doing that, you feel your attitude about those people changes and those feelings that you were looking for at the beginning sort of show up. Now, um, I really love that because... Uh, what we're doing today is the application, right? We're doing the application section of the sermon. So what do we do? How do we act as if we love our neighbors? Now, um, 
uh, her reasons in the beginning too, she talks about for writing this book, she says, is that Christians um, or the, the nation, right? We're polarized, we're isolated, people are in conflict constantly. And the idea of Christian love, neighborly love, is what, what we need to use to cut through sort of the tension that we have in our country. And I actually don't know what year she wrote this book, but I mean, I feel like in the last year and a half, that's even more true, right? The idea of tension and all that stuff. And so um, one of my favorite parts too in the book that she talks about, every chapter she brings us up. Uh, she calls it, this is one of her more brilliant insights, I think. Uh, she calls it Saturday living. And what she says is that Christians are Sunday people, right? Our whole like liturgy, everything is focused around Sunday, right? We're people of the Lord's day. But her challenge is this, how does the Sunday living, how does being Sunday people bleed into Saturday? And then she says, what's Saturday about? And then she goes into all sorts of suburban things that I don't understand, soccer practice and, you know, bounce house and like, I don't know, right? But she, she says, Saturday is generally the day where we get around and we watch college football and people hang out and you do all the fun stuff, right? I'm guessing that for most of us, this is probably true. You don't, have to, you don't have to admit it in front of a pastor. But for most of us, we probably think of Saturday as like, oh, dope, Saturday. And then we think of Sunday as like Saturday light. Like, it, I got half of the day off. <laughs> but Sunday morning, I got to get up and set the sound system up. And we got to break all the chairs down. And it's a little, you know, um, for most of us, we think of Saturday as like this big relaxing day. And what she says is, those two should be connected, right? And really every day should be connected to what we do on Sunday should bleed into those Saturday moments and especially the gathering moments with our neighbors. Now, here's our outline for today. This is her seven chapters. Um, this is what she says. This is how, and all of this is in the um, version thingy and it'll be on the podcasts um, today. All of the questions too that we're gonna ask so you don't have to frantically scribble down. I mean, if you want to, but... You don't have to frantically scribble down the questions right now because they'll be up there. But anyway, these are her seven points, right? We want to be humble. We want to ask questions to learn. We want to shut up and listen. Oh, wait, that's a bad word, right, Heaven? Uh, we want to stand in the, those awkward moments. Um, we want to accept what is. I'll get into that. We want to lighten up uh, and give freely. These are her seven ideas. And so this is only sort of loosely connected to the, this is not an exegetical summary of the, the Good Samaritan parable, but it really is kind of like we're taking these principles we've studied in the last two sermons, and we're going to try to apply these. And I really liked her book, so I thought, uh, you know, let's steal it. Now, with that said, let me just say one quick word about there's a big controversy out there in like Christian circles right now in the last few years about plagiarism in the pulpit. And how does this work, right? How does a pastor quote sources and all of this stuff? Uh, again, it's a big debate. Um, here's the thing. It's never okay to pass off something that's not yours pretending it was, right? Like I've heard a sermon where a pastor was like, yeah, me and my kids were blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's not you. I read that in this book. Like, I know where you got that from, and you're pretending that this happened to you, and it didn't. That's dishonest, and you should never do that. Um, ideas are a little more fuzzy, right? Um, uh, there's actually a book uh, called, a preaching book called, Daddy, Did That Really Happen, or Were You Just Preaching? I love that, right? Because some kids said, about this topic, some kids said that to her dad, who was a pastor, because he kept embellishing stories. And so we never want that to be the truth. But here's the thing, or of our services, I don't want that to be me, right? But... Um, Here's the other side, though, is that truth is truth. 
and I'm gonna steal whatever I can if it means it's gonna help you guys, right? I'm not up here writing a doctoral thesis, so I'm not constantly quoting sources, this is where I got that from, yada yada. In big cases like this, I wanna say I stole most of this sermon from this lady's book uh, and be upfront about it, but at the same time, a lot of the stuff I'm gonna say today as we go through this is gonna be my stuff. It's not your job to figure out which ones was John and which ones was the, the authors. It doesn't matter. If you wanna go read the book, it's a great book. Go read the book, you'll get, and then you'll see the differences. But I want you guys to just know about, stole most of this from the book. All right, so here's our first point today uh, of seven-point sermons, just like they teach in seminary, seven-point <laughs> sermons. All right. Um, we want to be humble. We want to hold a posture of humility. Um, we were actually built to be humble. I know for most of us that's pretty hard to believe. But humanity was built to be humble. We were built to be in a relationship with the Trinity in perfect humility. And you guys know the famous C.S. Lewis quote? By the way, I read a book the other day. It might have been this book. I don't remember. Where they were like, you know the C.S. Lewis quote? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's a famous C.S. Lewis quote. And then somebody else quoted it in a book, and then I think she quoted that person. And I'm like, Rick Warren didn't say that, sorry. Like, that's like the world's most famous C.S. Lewis quote. But anyway, um, editor of the book. But anyway, we were built to be humble, right? The idea is thinking of yourself less. Inside the Trinity, they're constantly um, serving the other two. And that's the way the Trinity works. And we were invited to be a part of that dance. And the first sin was telling the Trinity, I don't want any part of this anymore. I don't want to serve you. I want to serve me. I want everything to be about me. And so our sin has kind of ruined us. And if you think that getting saved and coming to put your faith in Jesus means that your pride is just going to melt away, you're in for a big disappointment, right? We spend our whole lives struggling with especially this sin, I've noticed. And so we see this in the Good Samaritan, right? I, there, that's got to be part of the reason the Levite and the priest just walked right past this guy was pride. I'm thinking about me and I'm not going to think about him. Humility is I'm going to think about him and I'm not going to think about me. And so what we see with the, the good Samaritan is actually he embodies this really well. He shows what it's like to be humble, is to put somebody else's needs wholly above your own needs. And again, like we talked about in that first sermon, Christ is the ultimate example of this sort of humility, is that he humbled himself right, the New Testament tells us, even to the point of death on the cross, right? That's how far Christ humbled himself. Now, how does pride show up in neighboring, and how does humility show up in neighboring? See, a lot of times we can be neighbors in a proud, kind of terrible way, and this happens a few different ways, right? When our motives are selfish, like one way is like this. We think of people as projects. You're my project. John says, I need three or four Pabst Blue Ribbon people to pray for, and I, I'm putting you on my list, and I'm not going to think of you as a person. I'm going to think of you as a project. And I need somebody to check off, because John might ask us on Wednesday night about how have you been doing the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway with somebody. And so instead of helping somebody because we want to help them, and instead of using the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway as a way to that end, we use the Pabst thing as the end, and they're the means to get to the end. Does that make sense? Like, they're the project that just helps me have something to say to John in the Wednesday night group. That's a terrible way to treat human beings that are made in the image of God, right, and who reflect his glory. And when we do that, neighboring becomes about us, not about the other people. When we're talking about neighboring, it always has to be more about the other people than it is about us. Another way that pride shows up in neighboring is when we have to help people our way. You know what I mean, right? So um, have you ever 
had somebody offer to help you cook, and then they show up and they tell you all the things you're doing wrong while you're cooking. <laughs> you're like, I, I know how to make this. I do this all the time, right? I mean, okay. I cook the eggs, guys. I'm, I know about cooking, right? This is. I spilled a lot of it on the stove, and okay, I barely cooked. I barely made it through, but I cooked the eggs, right? So this is a great illustration. All my illustrations now are going to be about cooking because I made the eggs last week. Um, <laughs> anyway, but you know what I mean. Somebody tries to help you, and then they they only want to help you their way. And it, again, then that makes everything about them. Um, in the Good Samaritan story, the guy probably wasn't in a place to say, hey, this is how you should help me. He was probably unconscious, lying there half dead. But I think you still get the point, right? Most people are in a place to be able to voice needs. And a lot of times we come in and we say, well, no, I'm proud and I know better than you. Here's your actual needs, right? And let's say you're right, even if you're right. And you know what they actually need a little bit better than they probably do. And you come in and you say, I'm not going to help you with what you think you need. I'm going to only help you over here. What happens is, again, somebody feels less than who they are, right? We've knocked somebody down a peg, and we don't want to do that. So, like, being sensitive to listening to people um, is actually, we're coming up on the next couple that will talk about that. But being sensitive to listen to people and how they need help is very important when we're talking about neighboring, Right, is not we just come in and like Superman, I'm gonna fix all of your problems and here's how I know how to do it. All right, so some questions to ask yourself with this first one. Um, am I expect expecting something in return? This is a great way to figure out why you're helping somebody. If I get nothing out of this interaction and this relationship, right, how am I gonna feel about that? And if the answer is I'm gonna be so upset and blah, 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 you know, then you're probably doing this for you. Right? The answer to this should always be, I'm doing this to serve them because Jesus served me. And that's all I need out of this. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get stuff like friends. And we've talked about letting people serve you at the same time. But that's not the reason we do things. Um, next is, does this person feel loved and cared for? Right? If, if at the end of the day, you're trying to be a neighbor to somebody and they... they don't feel loved and cared for, you probably did something wrong. There was probably some pride in there. Um, and then, how have I lowered myself to help this person? How have I humbled myself to help this person? In the book, she tells a story of a mom comes into, they have a church with a big kids program and stuff, and this mom comes in just clearly with mom face. You know what that is? Just like uh, exhausted mom face. And what was it? So one of the kids dropped something. No, what it was. The mom looked down, she was holding two kids. She looks down at her shoes, and one of her shoes is untied. And she just goes like this. <laughs> and the helper at the children's ministry dropped to a knee and tied her shoe for her. And she just was like, the mom was blown away by that. That's a little thing, but that's definitely like foot washing, right? That's, that's um, humbling yourself to help somebody out. You're not better than anybody. I'm gonna just let you in on a little secret, <laughs> you know? Like, people are built in the image of God, and you're not better than them. You can tie people's shoes. You can help clean somebody's house. You, this stuff that you think you're too good for, you're not too good for it, right? Because you know who was too good for it was Jesus was too good for you, right? And if he can do that for you, you can tie somebody's shoe, and you can clean somebody's house, and you can help him change the cat litter or whatever. I'm not doing that, by the way. Just, just kidding. All right, here we go. <laughs> Number two, ask questions to learn. Okay, you guys watch a lot of Law & Order like I do, or is that just me? 
Okay, yeah. So I watch. I love like uh, well, my favorite shows, right? Law and Order, the show, the first forty-eight, which is like the the reality show version of Law and Order. Who intense? Anyway, this is what I now I know everything about the criminal justice system. Let me tell you how this works. In a in a trial, a lawyer will never ask a question he doesn't already know the answer to. That's like day one of law school. I'm pretty sure, right? Is don't let him try the glove on. You know what I mean? Um, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> right? No? Nobody? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Um, because they're not there to find information. They're there to move a narrative to their ends of a guilty or not guilty verdict. You know what I mean? They're not actually fact-finding in a courtroom. Um, sometimes, this is how believers talk to people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're lawyers trying to move a narrative to a specific point, and we don't care what they actually say. <laughs> And we're not out there seeking information. And so in our Pabst Blue Ribbon, this is the second one, right? We want to ask questions, ask people about their lives, but we don't want to do it like lawyers. And if we're taking that first idea, we want to be humble, then this one makes a lot of sense. Humility says, I don't know everything, and you're an interesting person built in the image of God, and I want to hear your story. And so I'm not going to ask leading questions. I'm going to ask actual questions, um, not trying to find, you know, Oh, I'm going to get you to say something that'll get me to talk about the four spiritual laws. That's not what we're doing, right? We're asking actual questions to find answers. So what do we do? There's a couple of ways we do this. Two ways. We ask, or three ways, open-ended questions, right? Don't ask people when you're having these conversations yes or no questions, right? How did you two meet and, uh, versus um, how long have you been married, right? Is a short one, f almost 15 years. How'd you two meet? We went to junior high together. There's a whole story, right? Um, that's different. What makes you happy versus are you happy? <laughs> right? What is it that makes you happy? Let people talk about that. Uh, let's see, what else do I have? Oh, why did you choose that school versus what school did you go to? You can kind of tack that on. Where'd you go to school? Why'd you choose it? You know? Then there's a whole story that we want, we want, to, um, uh, we want people to um, open up. Like, it's... You know, you guys watch late night TV, or is that just me too? Is all my sermon illustrations about TV? But okay, here we go. Uh, you know, like when you watch late night TV and you can tell all of the interviews are just totally canned. You know what I mean? Like they gave here, ask me these questions, I'll tell you this story. It's all very like, it's not great. Um, versus who was that guy the inside the actor's studio dude? You guys know this dude? Um, Lipton, James Lipton. He asks real questions and then he lets people talk about stuff. I love that. And I don't even like acting. I don't care about that at all. But I like watching, I like watching him interview people because, is he still alive? I don't know, he's, did he die? Anyway, uh, he like asks real questions, right? Like, you moved to LA when you were 14 and your parents, tell me about that. And then they tell the whole story. That's the kind of people we want to be, or questions we want to ask. Um, the next thing we do then is, while they're telling the stories, let's ask follow-up questions, right? Oh, tell me more about that. Why was that surprising? How did you react? How did that make you feel? Right? That's the joke with the therapist. How did that make you feel? Um, or why do you always, what's the joke? Why do you always ask me questions instead of answers? Somebody asked the therapist. I don't know. Why do you think I do that? You know? Anyway, <laughs> like that's the kind of stuff we want to do, right? Just like the therapist. Um, and then here's the other thing. Unlike lawyers, we want to be prepared for any answer. Right? The lawyers are like, I know you're going to say this, and then I'm going to trap you, and I'm going to do this. That's not what we're doing. We're sitting there, and we got to be ready for anything, right? People are weird and interesting and they live whole lives and they have these stories. And as we're listening to these stories, <clears throat> we can't get stuck up that their answer is not exactly what we would have wanted them to say. Okay, so 
Oh, and then I actually had one more. Remember, too, while you're doing all of this, she has a whole section in here about nonverbal communication. Okay, the, the way you listen is important because people know that. Tone and posture, eye contact, face people, not along. Mmm, interesting, right? It's not that hard, watch. I have a slip disc, even I can do this, right? Okay, so just pay attention to people and we'll get to that more a little later. All right, here's the questions for this one. What makes you feel uncomfortable in a, or comfortable in a conversation? I guess you could say uncomfortable too, right? Flip this, this, you know, the, the, the interaction and just pretend like you know what it's like to be them and ask yourself that question. Um, ask someone to be honest with you. Oh yeah, and tell you something you may not know. Okay, speaking of nonverbal communication, um, when I'm concentrating, uh, I stare off into space. Okay, that's what I do. I go like this. And you're like over here talking to me. And I'm just, I'm listening. And I'm a terrible rememberer. <laughs> and so I'm trying to remember. And when I try to remember something, I look like an idiot and I stare off into space. Anyway, did this my whole life, never knew it. One day Melissa was like, hey, you know you look like an idiot and staring off into space and you come off like you're super rude. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. And now I try not to do it and I think I still do it, right? But if she hadn't been like, hey dummy, this is, how, this is why you look like an idiot, I never would, I had no idea, right? I thought I was just listening to people and I didn't realize how I was coming off. And I'm super grateful that my wife was like, hey, you're an idiot and this is how you're coming off, I'm paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> right, so here's the thing. You're doing something you don't even know. Find somebody and ask them, okay? Uh, all right, number three, uh, be quiet and listen. Um, as we're, li you know, um, listening requires intentionality, okay? You, accidentally, if we just kind of how, how we act naturally, we're gonna be terrible listeners, all of us. And so here, there's a couple of ways that this um, intentionality shows up. The first, and she, these are all from her list, I think. Listening requires time, is the first one she says. It takes time to sit and listen to people, and you have to be okay being interrupted, right? Her story is one day her husband was out in front, and I think he was supposed to be mowing the lawn or something, and he was like out there forever, and he came in. She was like, what are you doing? You didn't even mow the lawn. He was like, yeah, I was talking to the neighbor. What were you talking about? Football. <laughs> and she was like kind of annoyed. But her husband had made an intentional, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to spend some time with the neighbor, and we're going to talk about something that the neighbor wants to talk about. Um, one example of this is when um, uh, the people who set up the partnership with the EFCA church, which is how a lot of you guys are here, uh, the, the denominational people, said to me, hey, this might be a possibility. At some point, I want to get you guys all together. I said, great. They called me. The guy's name was Mike. Mike called me. Hey, I'm actually at lunch with all of them right now in Chinatown, down from your house. Can you come meet us right now? I said, sure. Jumped on my motorcycle back when I could do things like that. And I rode down. I parked in Chinatown. And as I was getting off the bike, there was another guy with a bike. And he comes over. He starts asking me about my bike. I'm like, they're waiting for me for lunch. I stopped. And I talked to this guy. And uh, we were talking about something, and we actually exchanged information, and we had texted after that a few different times. Nothing ended up coming of it. And I walked in super late, and I sat down with Pastor So and everybody who was there. And I was like, hey, sorry I'm late. I was talking to this guy. <laughs> you know? But that, that, that was a value of mine was, look, this meeting is, I mean, and it was a last-minute meeting. They actually didn't know how long it would take me to get down there, and they were fine waiting for me. But... I was like, this meeting is the most important thing that's happened to me in a couple of years, and I'm going to stop for a second, and I'm going to talk to this guy. 
because we have this common interest and I don't know what's going to come of this and he seems interested in, you know, where are you going, that sort of stuff, right? That, we want to be able to like carve out time in our lives to listen to people. Listening to people is more important than almost everything that you do, right? Maybe go to work, you should show up for work, I think, that's pretty important. Uh, but, you know, we want to we carve out time for this. Um, again, listening, this is the next one on her list, requires attention. Um, imagine that you are in a very serious conversation with somebody. And right in the middle of the serious part, they get out their phone and start swiping Instagram. They're not paying attention. Now, there's a million ways we do this to people that have nothing to do with Instagram. But we want to give people our attention. And um, she also talks about our focus. Focus is what's happening in your brain. As they're talking, are you planning dinner? Are you thinking about how great it is that the Dodgers lost last night and they're not going into the World Series? Is this what's going on? Or are you focused on what they're actually talking to you about? Listening requires quiet. This, now, this may be brand new information to some of you guys, but you can't talk and listen at the same time. Right? That's not how it works. Um, in listening conversations, uh, it kind of seems kind of obvious, but you have to actually listen. Right? And that can't happen while you're flapping your gums. Um, I have a friend who's a really good friend of mine, and every time somebody's talking, he does this to me, he does this to everybody, and every time somebody's talking, they get halfway through a thought, he realizes where they're going to go, and then he starts responding before they're done with their thought. And uh, someday I'm going to put a bar of soap in a tube sock, I'm going to hit him in the face. No, just kidding. It's super annoying when you're talking to him, right? And uh, I know because I said something to him once and he still does it anyway. I don't know. I, I don't know if he can help it. But, like, you know, interrupting people because I got to get my thought in is um, not great. <laughs> you know, let, let people, let the conversation flow. All right, so question here. There's only one question, I think. Um, why do you tend to make every conversation about you? This is a good question. This is another one we, I didn't really talk about here, but as you're listening to somebody's story, what's gonna happen is something in your brain is gonna spark. Here's a TV show that kind of is connected to this. Here's a story from my life that is kind of connected to this. You need to ask yourself, what's the point of sharing this little tidbit of information as they're in the middle of this very serious thing that they're talking about? You don't always have to talk. You know, you can just listen to people and thoughts of things to say will flood through your head Let's filter those. You don't have to say everything and you don't have to make every conversation about you. Um, right? I'm terrible at this. I'll admit it. I hate it. And then I go home and I'm like, dang it, why did I? I'm such a dummy. Um, you know why? It's because every pastor that you ever meet is better in front of groups of people than one-on-one. -on -one. That's a science fact. I don't know why that is. But <laughs> that's how we all are. We're all terrible at one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, but anyway, something I'm working on and you should too. All right, number four, stand in the awkward. Okay. Let me tell you about Scott's tots. <laughs> Melissa knows. You guys watch The Office? Okay, so there's an episode of The Office called Scott's Tots. And this is what happens in the episode. And Michael, who's the idiot boss, 20 years ago, no, not 20. How long would that have been? 10 or whatever years ago. He went to an elementary school when he was younger. And he told a whole class of kids, if you all go to college, I'll pay for it. Because he was just assuming he was going to be successful. Fast forward, they're all graduating high school. He has no money. He has to show up at the class and tell this room full of kids that he doesn't have the money to pay for their college. But, and then he goes, 
But in college, you all are going to need laptops, and they all get excited. Well, at least we're getting a laptop out of it. And you can't have a laptop without a battery. He pulls out laptop batteries, and he gives one to every kid. Okay. And oh, at the beginning of the thing, when he shows up, they have a whole song that they sing about him. What you going to do? Make your dreams come true. Like all this stuff. It's the most uncomfortable half hour in the history of television. Melissa and I pretty much watched The Office on a cycle, right? And just started over and started over. I've only seen this episode once, right? Because I do not like to stand in the awkward. <laughs> I, I can't, I know it's not real. I know they're actors. I know every one of those kids got paid and this was like the pinnacle of their life was being in this episode and I still can't watch it because it is so uncomfortable. That is a very natural reaction to awkward, isn't it? We do not want to be in the awkward Melissa makes fun of me because I'll do this like in TV. I'll just go, ah, I don't want to watch. It's too awkward and uncomfortable, right? Um, in the, oh wait, I didn't put this quote in. Um, in the book, she says this. Things can get awkward and uncomfortable when we stand with our neighbors. In fact, if they don't, we should wonder if we're uh, truly living the call to love as Jesus did. If, we're, if we start with the posture of humility, if we're asking questions to learn, if we're being quiet to listen, there's a high chance uh, that we will... Uh, become comfortable in awkward situations. Okay, there's no way to be a good neighbor. I'm just letting you in on this, right? I think a lot of Christians try to figure out how can I be a good neighbor and avoid the awkwardness. I'm going to do it as long as it's not uncomfortable for me. And I'm just letting you know right now, it's not going to happen. It's going to be awkward. There's going to be awkward moments, and you just have to be okay with that. Just suck it up and watch Scott's Tots, you know what I mean? Don't. It's terrible. I'm not watching it. I can't do it. Um, I'll give you... Um, an illustration, coffee movement opened up uh, down the street from my house, coffee shop. I'm right by um, the rec center there, the Betty Ong rec center. And we went when it first opened up. And they have this cool um, like VW van that they've turned into like a coffee cart that they park out front. So it wasn't the owner, but it was one of the, like the first guys who kind of opened it. And I was talking to him and I was saying, man, the coffee cart is really cool. Like I love the van. And I was telling him, yeah, I have this like hippie uncle who travels, he lived in a van like this. You know, and at one point he lived in a school bus. And, uh, okay, this is a little bit of salty language, so I won't say the actual words. But he goes, oh, that's really cool, man. I have an uncle. He's like, I wish I had a cool uncle. I just have this uncle. He's an a-hole evangelical Christian. And I was like, oh, next question out of his mouth. So what do you do? <laughs> and I was like, I'm a pastor. You want to know what I actually said? Okay. I was like, uh, I'm a pastor of an evangelical church. <laughs> he stood there looking at me. I was like, it's fine. <laughs> you know? And we had a good chuckle about it. He was okay. And I talked to him more after that. Okay. That was awkward, right? That was an uncomfortable, you know, I could have lied. I could have been like, what do you do? Oh, I do this insurance thing, which at the time I was doing, you know? Right? But... Being in relationships with people, especially that aren't like you, is going to lead to awkward stuff. And so what she says you need to do is you need to have courage. And she lists a bunch of ways to have courage. The first one she says is you have to have courage to actually feel stuff, right? So um, she talks about how um, we escape, like, actually being in situations that are going to cause us feelings to avoid awkward feelings. Um, the next thing she says is you have to have courage to question um, sometimes we don't ask questions because we know the answer is going to be awkward. And so we just say, you know what, I'm not going to engage here. I'm not going to ask these questions. We have to have courage to stay. Our natural instinct is to do what I do with Scott's Tots and not watch the episode. 
And she says, in the real life, you have to stick around in those moments when Scott's Todd's is happening. You have to have courage to be honest. Sometimes it's easier to lie. What do you do for a living? Oh, I work in finance, <laughs> right? <laughs> or something. There was a temptation to not be like, I'm a pastor, right? Um, uh, but we can't do that because we are the people of him who is right the, the way, the truth, and the life. We can't be liars, guys. Um, <clears throat> courage to admit when we're wrong. Okay, sometimes admitting that you were wrong about something is going to create the awkward. And so to avoid the awkward, we refuse to admit we're wrong. Or like my buddy who says it was a swing and not a check swing, my Dodger fan buddy, he needs the courage to admit that he's wrong and then it won't be awkward between us anymore. Um, no, anyway, honestly though, this is what I figured out. Admitting you're wrong is crazy freeing. Okay, this is so, we all do this, right? Somebody uses a word in a conversation, you don't know what it means, right? There's a lot of words in English, we don't know them all. Or, and then kids keep making up new words that don't make any sense, right? I'm that guy now, right? I'm the old man screaming at the children's. Uh, what are you talking about? Okay, so, um, a while ago, when I was in college, I just started, I just came to the realization that, okay, no, what happened was I got busted pretending like I knew what this slang word was. And then my black roommate was like, you don't know what that means. And I was like, no. And he laughed and made fun of me, right? And it was awkward. And then he explained it to me. And I was like, oh, that makes sense, what you just said now. So after that, I just started asking people, what does that mean? I don't know that word. I'll stop somebody in the middle of a conversation. Hey, wait, explain that better, because I know the word, I've heard it, I kind of know what it means, but what does it actually mean? It's crazy freeing to admit you don't know something. It's also freeing to admit you were wrong about something. Um, we've, I've not talked about this a lot. We did this a lot at our old church. We'll do this here, too, though. Is In a sermon, if you can prove to me that I said something wrong, I'll get up the next week and be like, hey, this is the thing I said that was wrong. But you have to actually convince me, <laughs> right? Not just, hey, you have this other theological idea. But like, if you can convince me, I'll get up and talk about it. It's freeing. Um, all right, the next one she talks about is the courage to disagree, okay? Sometimes it's easier to just agree with somebody and be like, yeah, yeah, okay, I, yeah, I think that too, when you don't. And being able to say to somebody, I don't know about that, can create tension and create an awkward situation. Um, I have a buddy who was a leader in a church setting, and he was a terrible leader because he was the agree with everybody in every conversation. And so people would go to him in one conversation, and he would say, yeah, yeah, that's what I think. And then people would come to him in another, on the same topic and give him the other side. And he would say, yeah, 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 that's what I think. And then when somebody would say, why are you telling everybody? <laughs> You know, it just it caused a lot of problems because he didn't have the courage to just disagree with somebody and have that conversation. Um, and then the last one she lists is the courage to act. Sometimes giving somebody a hug who needs a hug can be awkward. You know what I mean? Sometimes asking somebody, do you need help with this, can be awkward. Um, but she says we need the courage to act even if it's awkward. Avoiding an awkward situation is no reason to not be a neighbor. It's not. I'm so, like, if we're going to do this PAPS thing as a church and we're going to engage with our neighbors, it's going to be awkward and there's going to be those moments. And here's the thing. Okay, right? It'll be awkward. You'll get over it. And I've had a lot of awkward moments at the coffee shop at, you know, just trying to do this myself. And at first I was very afraid of it. And then, you know what? I realized, oh, it's not so bad, <laughs> right? <clears throat> I live. I'll live. Okay, here's the uh, questions. <clears throat> um. So she, uh, these ones, feel, the courage to feel, question, stay, be honest, admit you're wrong, disagree. 
Which one of those from the list is going to be the hardest for you? And think about that this week. All right, five. The last ones are a little bit shorter, I hope. Okay. Um, she quotes Rosaria Butterfield, who is one of my favorite thinkers in the evangelical world. Um, brilliant lady. I look at a person as an image bearer of, um, it's cool, it's just the Holy Spirit moving through. Um, just kidding. <laughs> uh, had a little Acts 2 shivers. Okay. Um, I look at a, people on the podcast have no idea what's going on. Um, I look at a person as an image bearer, oh, I have the quote. I look at a person, let's try this again, as an image bearer of a holy God, and I'm not in any way spooked by whatever worldly identity that happens to be attached to that image bearer. Okay, here's the thing. People create these identities that looking at their life through the lens of scripture, we're like, that's not right. And so we write people off. And what she says is people, if they're image bearers, they're image bearers. And even if they're assigning themselves some sort of a, uh, identity that we don't agree with, doesn't mean that they're any less of an image bearer of God. And so what we can do is we can look at people and interact with people without um, agreeing with everything about them. That's kind of what this is. Now, evangelicals, we have this annoying way of dealing with outsiders that's very off-putting. And we make, we're very good at making people feel uncomfortable if they don't match up with Jesus' holiness 100%, right? If they're not batting 1,000. Here's the thing, though. Nobody bats 1,000 in real baseball, right? Especially not the Dodgers, um, <clears throat> who lost last night, if you haven't heard. Um, <laughs> okay, nobody bats 1,000. So a terrible coach is the kind of coach who says, wow, you just got out 7 out of 10 times. You stink. Versus the coach that says, wow, you're hitting 300. You know, we want to be the, wow, you're hitting 300 coach. Um, and she gives an example of this. There's, she met a guy who was a pastor and not a pastor anymore or something. I don't remember all the details. Anyway, he had an unwed teenage daughter who was having a baby or had just had a baby. I don't remember. And in Christian circles, the pastor whose daughter has a baby in high school is very uncomfortable in awkward situations. And he starts to tell her the story or something, and he's kind of making excuses, you know. And he says something like, maybe someday she'll change the world. And the author says, oh, she already did, right? She brought another image bearer into the world. That's awesome. Now, an unwed teenage mother in high school, is that ideal? No, right? That's not how we want to do things. But is that unwed teenage mother an image bearer of God who... Part of the way is, you know, she was right. She's changing the world. She's bringing, and anyway, she tells a story and the pastor's countenance changed. Like, nobody's ever been nice about this in a, as a Christian before, right? That's the, um, we don't want to write people like that off. We want to help change her situation, but we want to do it by loving her where she is. Um, I, there's a person I know who's a pretty strong believer now, showed up at the church like when I was a kid, and she was um, uh, unwed mom of twins, who poverty level, you know, and uh, there's this lady at the, that old church who <clears throat> um, is super nice lady, took her under her wing and basically treated this woman for 20 years like she was her daughter, right? And through that, she was discipled into faith, right? And so that's what we want to do. And the way that we do that is empathy, right? So you guys know what empathy is? It's stepping into the other person's shoes and feeling what they feel. And when we get hung up on people's lack of holiness, which is present in all of us, but empathy then is impossible. We get into that, well, they did this to themselves mode, which they might have, 
right? But we can still be empathetic. So how do we practice empathy? Just, she gives a few things. Verbalize what you've heard. So as you're hearing people's stories, don't just dwell on all the stupid things they've done or the, the things we think are wrong, but repeat back to them the things that they're saying like you're actually listening. Um, affirm the other people's feelings, right? That seems like a normal response, right? Oh, I can understand how that made you angry. I think I would have probably been pretty angry too. Things like that. Um, and then the last one she puts is don't mistake empathy for approval. You can be empathetic in somebody's sinful situation without approving of everything that they're doing. You can understand what they're going through, right? Empathy is I understand how you feel, not I totally agree that you made a right choice. And because Christians, I think, don't get that right all the time, we, we're not empathetic the way that we should be. And so um, here's the questions, Ed, for this one. Who in your life are you in a, uniquely in a position to encourage? I think about the people, who can you be empathetic with and get in there and encourage? And can you think of an example for your own life where someone encouraged you with empathy? Most likely, we've all had situations like this, and we remember them because it's, it's a rare thing to have these kind of conversations. All right, number six. Uh, we've got to hustle up here. Lightening up. Okay, right? What's the joker? Why so serious? Right? I feel like that's, just, that's church people. Why so serious all the time? Can we make fun of the Dodgers in a sermon? Yeah, right? It's, they're the Dodgers. That's what God put them on earth for was for me to rag on them during a sermon. Okay, here's the picture of Christians, right? We have monks in a monastery taking a vow of silence. You know what I mean? Or we have um, the, who remembers the church lady from SNL, right? The, the, you guys don't know the church lady? Okay, anyway. <laughs> um, I even saw an article the other day by a pastor that I really like about how pastors should never make jokes in sermons. This was the whole thing. Um, and I was like, is this satire? Is he making a joke or is he just an idiot? No, um, I, I really don't get that, right? Um, and what he says is it gives the wrong impression about this, the weight and the seriousness of what we're doing. Um, okay, here's the thing though. Serious doesn't mean joyless. Those are not, that's not how that works. The gospel is serious business, but it doesn't mean the gospel isn't fun and filled with joy. Um, think about a wedding. A wedding should be filled with joy. It should be a fun occasion. Is it also a serious occasion? Yes, right? So as Christians, we want to be joyful people. This is the constant picture we see of the New Testament church is no matter what's going on around them, they're filled with joy, right? Acts 2. After these uh, days, <clears throat> sorry, after three days, they found him in the temple. No, that's, dang it. That's not the verse. I'm going to read you the actual verse. That's Luke 2. Um, <laughs> Acts 2. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Does that sound like a bunch of grumpy killjoys? No, what are they doing, right? They're praising God. They're having lunch together. They're giving with generous hearts. And because of that, people are seeing them and they have favor with all the people. Um, or think about this. Think about the Old Testament system of religion that God set up. You ever thought about this, that God set into the Old Testament religion seven parties that they have to have? You have to get together. I guess Yom Kippur is not super a party. Let's say six parties and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. What's that? Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah, 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 okay, you're right. Um, but anyway, these seven ideas of like, you guys have to get together and celebrate and have a big meal and have all that, you know. Um, the way that, or think of the, the end of the story is um, 
more stuff falling. The end of the story is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a picture of this giant party where everybody gets together uh, in the, the marriage with the, the bride and Jesus, right? Um, Christians should be, this should be reflected in our lives. It's okay to get together as a church where the end goal is just to have fun. That's okay. That's, we're supposed to be joyful people, right? This is why we do missional family meetings, is to do life together and to have fun together. Um, and it's why we'll sometimes say, hey, you know what? The Niners are in the Super Bowl. We're going to watch that. Or, you know, in the playoffs. And we're going to stop and watch Steph Curry. Or, you know, that stuff is fun. Um, that's why we do New Year's Eve. Actually, we're doing a New Year's Eve party this year. So put it on the calendar. It's on the last day of the year, if you don't know. Um, Super Bowl parties. This is why we do this sort of stuff, right? We want to invite people into our lives, but also to see that Christians have fun. And that's a great way to be a neighbor. So this is the first question. How can you connect with neighbors through food? I don't know if you guys heard, but people like food. Uh, and especially people like good food. So how can you use food to connect with a neighbor? And then what fun things do you have in common with your neighbors? Right? I have a neighbor who plays guitar. We've talked about that. We've had conversations at some point. I think we're going to get together and we're going to play guitar. Um, uh, my mailman is sort of a neighbor. We've connected because we both love motorcycles. Um, I saw him for a long time. Every time I pulled out of my garage on my bike, he would stop whatever he was doing and he would watch me right away. And I was like, that guy rides motorcycles, right? Um, all right, here's the last one. This is the shortest one, giving freely. Um, Winston Churchill, who I'm reading the big giant biography of right now, it's fascinating. Um, he said this. Do I have the quote? Yeah, yeah. Um, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. That's a good quote. Um, oddly coming from Winston Churchill, who was, I don't think he gave anything to anybody, and he had a lot of servants and whatnot, but it's still a pretty great quote. Um, this is the B in our Pabst Blue Ribbon. Bless people in ways that nobody else will. We're not going to get into this a lot because uh, we covered this last week in the whole section with um, being a good neighbor is going to be costly. Right, so we went through a lot of this, but uh, again, we want to be people of generosity, right? Generosity with no strings is something that people remember. And I, I'll tell you this story, I may have told this before, but when I was a kid, we lived over in the Excelsior District on Felton uh, and Harvard, just like an old farmhouse. And um, we had this, we were a pretty broke family growing up, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And we had a Ford Escort, right, classy. And we parked it out, gold Ford Escort, we parked it out in front. And uh, one morning, my mom or dad or whatever came out, <clears throat> and uh, somebody had driven by and thrown a brick through the big window in the back of the car. You know, for a broke family, the deductible is probably more than the win. You know, so my parents paid for it. I don't remember all the details because I was a pretty little kid, but I think it happened a couple of times. And after the la one of the times, it happened like on a Sunday morning, and we showed up at church with another broken window. And there was no garage. There was nowhere else to park. It's not like there were a lot of options, you know. And... Um, we showed up and they did the like normal church service and right at the end of the church service you know actually the benediction we're going to read today my pastor read every time when i was a kid the lord bless you and keep you right blah 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 make his face to shine upon you amen you know and then everybody like grabs their stuff to get up and this lady kind of i forget all the, exactly how it happened but she basically like i think she stood up or something and was like hey everybody they broke the brackets window again i'm gonna be in the back <laughs> She walked into the back, and as everybody walked out, she stood there with a basket or a hat or whatever, and people just threw money into the hat. And I remember, at the, like, handing my mom, hey, here's for your window, you know what I mean? 
and it was like they counted it up. Here's enough for a, a window, and everybody gets to go to lunch, which was not a big thing when we were a kid. We didn't get to go to lunch a lot. Okay, the reason I tell you that story is because I don't even remember all the details, and I was a kid, and I remember it, <laughs> right? Because a bunch of people got together and said, you know what, to this young family in our church, we're going to be super generous, and we're going to buy this window, and we're going to do this stuff. People remember generosity. People do not forget that kind of stuff. So let's be the kind of people then that are super generous. So just, this is the same question um, as last time. Oh, wait. Uh, no, I guess not. I don't have the question in here. Um, the, the question is the same one as last time. How can you make your life worse to make somebody else's life better? All right, that was one of the questions from last week, and I thought that's a good one. All right, so wrapping up then. That's the, the good Samaritan. Now, we're a small church. I don't know if you guys noticed. <laughs> right? we're, we're a little tiny church we're just getting kind of relaunching but what's the benefit of that is we're still at the point where we get to set the tone we get to decide what kind of church we're going to be when you're a church of a thousand people or even a hundred people or even 75 people it can be hard to like shift the culture of a group like that but we're small enough that we can we get to decide from the get-go it's like building your own house you know what I mean like you ever been in an apartment? Boy, I wish this closet was over there. When you're building your own house, you get to put the closet over there. So where are we putting the closets, right? Where are we putting the bathroom? How are we building this house? Um, hopefully you guys are starting to get the point. <laughs> There's a reason that we didn't do three sermons when we came across the passage on election. Right? There's a reason we didn't do a bunch of sermons, three sermons, when we came to the passages on miracles. There's a reason we didn't do three when we came to passages on fasting or whatever it is, or calming the storm. We did three passages on the Good Samaritan, and we did that for a reason. Because I don't want us to be the church with the best preaching in the entire world. I mean, that's just going to happen, but that's not the point. No, I'm just kidding. Right? That's not what we want. We don't want to, obviously, <laughs> we don't want to be the church with the best music, right? <laughs> Having a drummer play guitar every week. Um, <laughs> we don't want to be the church even, I don't even want to be the church with the most people. But here's what I want to be. I want to be the church with the best neighbors. Right? That's the kind of church we want to be. That's where we want to put the closets. We want to be the church with the best neighbors. And what that means is you have to get to that point. We're, are we the church with the best neighbors? Nah. <laughs> right? But we want to put some work into it. And that's why we're going to keep talking about this PAP stuff. Grab a magnet for your fridge. Grab a sticker for your water bottle. Think about this a lot. This is what we want to do. And the reason that we want to be the church with the best neighbors is because we're the church who's been saved by the greatest neighbor. We never want to forget that. That Jesus is the ultimate picture of the one who sacrificed and did all of these things and came to us when we didn't deserve it at all. And so what we're doing, again, like I think I said last week, is we're just the moon reflecting his light into the world. He's the sun, we're the moon. And that's the kind of church we want to be. Amen? All right, let's pray.